In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, God said to Adam in the Garden of Eden, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. God gives a clear command to Adam, you can eat from all the trees, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you you cannot eat from it. Then in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve disobeyed, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and with their sin came the knowledge of their nakedness. So they hid. They hid first from each other, then they hid from God. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, God calls Adam and Eve to give an account for their sin, and Uh, Many scholars have noted how this is a a picture of what is coming for every human being, that every person on the planet one day will stand in the presence of God, our creator, and we will give an account for the way that we have lived our lives. And in verse 11, this is what God says. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, please notice, a simple one-word answer would be sufficient from Adam. Adam should have just said, yes, I did eat. Yes, I did eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he can't do that. I mean, he can't do that. Look what he does in verse 12. The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. Now, this is a bold move by Adam because he's not only blaming Eve for his sin, He is also blaming God for his sin. He says, you know, God, I don't remember asking for this woman. I really don't remember asking for her. I was a very happy single man. And then you knocked me out and I woke up married to Eve. And she gave me the fruit. She gave me the fruit to eat. The Babylon Bee, they posted a satirical article. That's what they do. And this is what they said. Study finds 100% of men would eat any fruit given to them by a naked woman. And and I think this is, this is what Adam is saying. Like, hey, what was, what, she, gave, she gave me the fruit. Like, what else am I supposed to do? You gave me this woman, she gave me the fruit. Adam was intended to be a great blessing. Eve was intended to be a great blessing to Adam. And now God has asked Adam to give an account. And Adam doesn't say, oh God, thank you for this woman. He's now blaming God and blaming this blessing, Eve, for his sin. Now, why didn't Adam just say yes? Why didn't Adam just say, yes, God, I did eat? Well, this is the reason. This is the summary of the reason that Adam blamed God and Eve to avoid the verdict that I have sinned against God, I deserve the judgment of God, and I need the grace of God. So this is what he's doing. He's blaming God and he's blaming Eve to avoid this verdict. The verdict that I have sinned against God, I deserve the judgment of God, and I need the grace of God. This is the impulse of our sinful hearts, of our religious sinful hearts. We blame God and others to avoid the verdict, the right verdict, that we have sinned against God, we deserve the judgment of God, and we need the grace of God. Now, in our text, the Apostle Paul is arguing with the most religious people on the planet, the Jewish people, and they are trying desperately to avoid the same verdict. They don't want to say, okay, I have sinned against God, I deserve the judgment of God, and I need the grace of God. They're trying to justify themselves. They're trying to excuse themselves, and they do this by blaming God and blaming others. And so Paul, like a good lawyer, is breaking through their defense. He's breaking through their shields, their religious shields, in order to bring them to Christ. And along the way, he anticipates two objections, and he's going to deal with two objections in our text. Objection number one is that the gospel is not true because it is not consistent with the character of God. 
This is what Jewish people are saying. They're saying, Paul, we're not going to believe the gospel. We're not going to accept the gospel because it's not true. How do you know it's not true? Because it's inconsistent. It's not consistent with the character of God. Now, this week, it took me about six hours of studying these four verses to understand the objection. It is a difficult objection in these four verses to understand because Paul, he keeps opening up all these cans, and he's going to address all these cans uh, in future chapters, but he doesn't address all of, all of the, that he opens up in these verses, he doesn't address right here. And so it's difficult to understand, okay, Paul, what exactly are you saying? What is the objection you are getting at? And so he's going to respond. He is going to respond in six parts. And as we look at these six parts to his objection, or to his response to the objection, then we will better understand the argument that Paul is dealing with. And I need to warn you, this is a little bit technical. Uh, what we're going to do, it's a little bit technical to walk through these verses. But you guys are smart, aren't you? You guys are smart people. You can do it. You can hang. So we're going we're gonna to have to think. We're going to have to think through the argument. Six parts. Six parts to Paul's response. Here we go. Number one, being Jewish is a significant blessing, but not sufficient to make you right with God. Being Jewish is a significant blessing, but not sufficient to make you right with God. Verse one, so what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Paul concludes chapter two by saying that circumcision and being a Jewish person, a descendant of Abraham, does not make you right with God. It does not protect you from the wrath of God. You need true circumcision of the heart, which comes through faith in Christ. So Paul anticipates the objection. Okay, so if you're not made right with God through circumcision, if you're not made right, if you're not made right with God through being a descendant of Abraham, then what value is there in being a Jew? And this is what Paul says, considerable in every way. Considerable in every way. They anticipated Paul saying there is no value in being Jewish. There's no value in being circumcised. But that's not what he says. He says, considerable in every way. Okay, so what's the benefit of being a Jew? What is the benefit of being circumcised? What is, benefit, what is the benefit of having the law? Here it is, number two, part two. The benefit is being entrusted with the very words of God, which promise and produce salvation. The apex of the benefit, the best part of being Jewish, is that God has given you his word. Verse two, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. This is an enormous privilege that God would give his people his word. The entire Old Testament was written by Jewish people. And most of the New Testament was written by Jewish people. Only the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written by a non-Jew, Luke. And, and the Bible is not just history. There is history in the Bible, but it's not just history. And it's not trivial. Uh, this is life and death what is being talked about in the word of God. The word of God promises and produces eternal life. The word of God reveals the character and nature of God, and God gave that word to his people. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 15, the apostle Paul tells Timothy, and you know that from infancy, you have known the sacred scriptures, the Old Testament, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So how did Paul think about the Old Testament? That it's through the Old Testament that people would come to faith in Christ and therefore be justified by faith. And so it is a great privilege to possess the word of God. Now here's the question. If the Jewish people are the chosen people of God, so follow the argument, if the Jewish people are the people of God and God gave his word to his people which promises and produces salvation, then what went wrong? Why are there so many Jewish people who are not Christians? 
And this is a great question to think about. Why are there so many Jewish people, especially you go back in time 2,000 years ago, why are there so many Jewish people who are not Christians? If they are the chosen people of God, God uniquely gave them his word, then what went wrong? Part three, this is part three of Paul's response. Israel had the word of God, but did not believe the word of God. Israel had it, God gave it to them, but they did not believe it. They didn't believe the word of God. This is where Paul begins to zero in on the unbelief of Israel. They had the word of God, they did not believe the word of God. John chapter five, Jesus says in verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Jesus says, you Pharisees, you have the word of God. God has given you the word of God. You have the word of God, and you pour over the word of God. The Pharisees had memorized the Torah. They had memorized so much of the Old Testament. He says, you have it, you pour over it, and you think they have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. So here's the problem in verse 40. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. They had the word of God, but they did not come to faith in Christ. They did not believe the word of God. Paul is beginning to emphasize the problem of unbelief. They thought that the big issue was circumcision or not circumcision. They thought the big issue is, who are your parents? Are you authentic descendants of Abraham? Because if you were, you're all good. If you're circumcised, you're good. If you have the law, you're good. Paul says, no. The, 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 the most foundational issue is whether or not you believe the word of God. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And we can make the same mistake. We can think, okay, do I go to a good church? Do I go to a church that preaches the Bible? Do I give my money away? Do I try to be a good person? That's what really matters. And Paul says, no, no, no. That's not what really matters. What really matters is faith expressing itself in love. If you have not faith in Christ, there is nothing you can do that pleases him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The most important issue in life is believing the word of God. And they glossed over that. They said, we're, we're children of Abraham. We're good. We're circumcised. We're good. We have the law. We're good. We go to the synagogue. We're good. We obey the, the ceremonies and the sacrifices. We're good. And Paul says, you didn't believe the word of God. You know, imagine for a second, everyone is walking around in darkness that the whole world, the whole world is just filled with darkness. There's no light whatsoever. And so human beings are we're stumbling around in darkness all over the place. Then God in his mercy gives electricity to his people, the nation of Israel. He gives his word to his people. He gives electricity to his people. He gives them power. He gives them light fixtures. He gives them light bulbs. He gives them electrical wire, wires. He gives them all the tools that they would ever need. And he says, you, my people, you are the light of the world. You are to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. But Israel did not turn on the lights. Instead, they made tasers. And they tased themselves. And they tased each other. And they tased the Gentiles. This is what they did. They took, they took what God gave them and they misused it. They misused it. They did not fulfill the intent of God's word. They did not trust and obey God from the heart. And Jewish people 2,000 years ago listening to the Apostle Paul, they would have said, you're right, Paul. We didn't believe. We didn't obey the word of God. That God gave us electricity and we tased everybody with it. Verse 3, what then? What then? If some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Let me rephrase the question. Is God done with the Jewish people because they don't believe the gospel? So the Jewish people who don't believe the gospel, is God done with them 
because they don't believe the gospel? Paul is saying, he's making his argument throughout the book of Romans, that faith in Christ alone, apart from circumcision, apart from your heritage, apart from the law, is what makes you right with God. And he's also making the case that Jewish people who do not have faith in Christ are condemned before God. They're cut off. If you don't trust and obey the word of God, if you don't put your faith in the gospel, he says your circumcision has become uncircumcision. That is from last week. This is where the question comes from. Okay, is God done with the Jewish people because they don't believe the gospel? Now, if you say yes, I mean, what's your answer? Is God done with the Jewish people because they don't, or is God done with the Jewish people because they don't believe the gospel? What's your answer to that question? If you say yes, God is done with the Jewish people unless they have faith in Christ. A well-versed Jewish person would go to Genesis chapter 17, verse seven, and this is what they would say. I will confirm my covenant. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. They would have said, that's us. This is us. We are the offspring of Abraham. Now, what kind of covenant is it? It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. They would have said, Paul, God made a permanent covenant with the descendants of Abraham. And I don't see any condition here for faith in Christ. So if your gospel is true, then Jews are condemned who do not have faith in Christ. And that makes God a covenant breaker. It challenges the covenant-keeping nature of God. So we know, we, they're saying, we know that's not true. We know, that's, we know that God keeps his covenant. Now if you say, no, God is not done with the Jewish people who don't have faith in Christ, they would say, Genesis 17, 7 is still in effect then. That's what they would say. No, God is not done with his people. Genesis 17, 7 is still in effect. And they would say, if that's true, then God is our God, and we are his people, and we don't need the gospel. We don't need the gospel. We are the people of God because we're descendants of Abraham. We have circumcision. We have the law. This is who we are. And it would be wrong for God to condemn us along with the Gentiles because we are descendants of Abraham. We're, we're part of the, the covenant God made to Abraham. And so they think they have Paul in a pickle. They think they have trapped Paul. They think they have a good justification for not believing the gospel. And I understand this is theologically a little bit difficult to follow. But this is the argument that Paul is dealing with. Now, what is Paul's response to this? Part four, the problem is not with God. The problem is not with God. This is, this is gonna be Paul's response. We're gonna see it un, unfold. So the question is, is God done with the nation of Israel? Is he done with Jewish people if they don't have faith in Christ? Verse four, absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. Paul is saying God will honor his word. God will keep every promise that he makes. And in Romans chapter 11, the apostle Paul explains the future salvation of the Jews through faith in Christ. Now, we're gonna get to Romans chapter 11 in a couple of years, so just hold that thought for a little while. We'll get to that explanation at a future date. And we could, we could springboard to, Hebrew, or to Romans chapter 11, but that would take a, a lot of time. We'll get there in due time. But I love that the Apostle Paul stops and defends the faithfulness of God. I love that. Let God be true. That should be the heart of every Christian. Let God be true. Even though everyone is a liar. He's saying the problem is not with God. The God, keep, God, the God of the Bible keeps every promise he makes. He is a covenant-keeping God. The problem is not with God. The problem is with your unbelief. 
That's the problem. The hidden assumption Paul is addressing is that unbelief is not a big deal. That's what they thought, that's what they would tell themselves. We're children of Abraham. Remember when John the Baptist was preaching repentance and people were gathering to listen to John the Baptist? And John the Baptist says, don't say to yourself, we are children of Abraham. Therefore, we do not need to repent. Don't say to yourself, we are children of Abraham. Therefore, we don't need to repent. They thought the big deal, the big foundational issue is who are your parents and do you have circumcision? But Paul says, the problem's not with God. It's not with God. And then he goes on and he doubles down. This is part five. This is what Paul is saying. David knew unbelief is a big problem. David knew that unbelief is a big problem. Romans 3, 4, absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words in triumph when you judge. So David, they, or Paul, goes to David in Psalm 51. David was the greatest king in the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart. He was a warrior. He was a songwriter. He was a poet. He was one of the heroes within the nation of Israel, within the nation of Israel. And everyone knew how David failed. Everyone knew about the adultery that David committed with Bathsheba. And everyone knew about the murder that David committed when he had Uriah the Hittite, his friend, put to death. Everyone knew about it. And everyone knew Psalm 51. And so David, he go, or Paul goes to David in Psalm 51, verse 4. This is what David says. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Okay, so let's think about what's going on here. David is exposed as a sinner, just like Adam. Just like Adam in the Garden of Eden. David is exposed, just like many of you, you've been exposed. And this is David's response. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So what's his verdict? So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David reached the conclusion that you Jewish people are trying to avoid. David agrees with me. This is what Paul is saying. David agrees with me. David reached the conclusion that Adam and Eve should have reached in the garden. That God is right to judge his people for their unbelief. That God is right to judge Israel for their rebellion. David said, I have sinned against God. And I love, I love that David doesn't say, well, what was Bathsheba doing taking a bath? You know, what was she, why, she knew that I could see her. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. He doesn't blame anyone. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Therefore, you are right in your verdict. And you were justified when you judge. It is right for God to judge the rebellion and unbelief of Jewish people. Conclusion, part six. God will keep his promises to Israel, and God is right to judge ethnic Jews who do not believe the gospel. I, I love this. This is, this is brilliant, what Paul's doing. He's saying, no, no, listen. God will keep, he will keep his promises to Israel. There is no inconsistency between the character of God and the gospel of grace. There's no inconsistency between the gospel that, that, of grace that God promises to save everyone who has faith in Christ and his promises to Israel. And God is therefore right to judge ethnic Jews who don't believe the gospel. 
Now, this conclusion or this objection, I should say, is, is overruled. He's, the Apostle Paul has destroyed this objection. And then he anticipates someone saying, okay, you're right, Paul, you're right. David, David agrees with you, you're right. We have sinned, our unbelief is a big problem. We've sinned against God, that's a big problem, we see that. He anticipates a second objection. And this objection is in Romans chapter three, five through eight. And there are two parts to this objection. The second part of the objection is, is seen in Romans chapter six. So Paul deals with the second part of the objection in Romans chapter six. So I'm only gonna deal with the first part with the rest of our time. And here is the objection. The objection is what if sin serves the purposes of God? What if sin actually serves the purposes of God? Sure, we haven't believed. Sure, we have sinned. But what if sin actually serves the purposes of God? And if sin serves the purposes of God, why would, why would God judge us for serving him when we sin? And this is the last line of defense. This is the final excuse. Paul has destroyed all the excuses, all the objections, and you can envision someone who just doesn't want to humble themselves before God. They don't want to put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, and so Paul keeps pressing. This is the last line of defense. And see, when people blame God, when people blame other people for their sin, it, it smells like Axe body spray to me. That's what it smells like. You know what I mean by that? Like when someone covers themselves in Axe body spray, they just shh. When you smell that person, when I smell that person, I don't think, wow, that smells great. I don't think that. I think, I wonder what you're covering up. What are you covering up here? You're probably covering something that I really don't want to smell. This is bad. Like, what is this? And see, this is the final objection. It's, a, it's, an, ex, it's an excuse. They're, they're taking the whole can of Axe body spray, emptying it trying to cover the stench of their sin. What if sin serves the purposes of God? Do you believe, just think about this question, do you believe that sin serves the purposes of God? Yes. We do. How do you get a crucified son of God apart from sin? Do you, don't you believe that sin serves the purposes of God? I think the answer is yes, ultimately, all things serve the purposes of God. So if that is the case, why would God judge me for serving him? Romans 3, 5. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? If our sin highlights the righteousness of God, what are we to say? If our unbelief magnifies God's righteousness, how can he, how can he judge us from making him look good? In 2022, there's a, a diamond. Uh, there's a, I think we have a picture of a diamond. This is called The Rock. It's a 228 carat diamond. It's sold for $22 million. I bought this for my wife, Meg, for Mother's Day. <laughs> She's a great mom. And, no, but this is $22 million. That's the most valuable, clear, or I think it's called a white diamond in the world. It's the most expensive diamond that's ever been sold. The most expensive white diamond that's ever been sold. And whenever you look at diamonds like this, if you want to go back to the previous picture, there's always a, a dark backdrop. There's always a dark backdrop. If you go back to the other picture, why is that guy wearing or that person wearing black gloves? It's to magnify the glory of the diamond. And if you go to a jewelry store, they'll, they'll roll out a dark mat. And the dark mat is to provide the contrast between the diamond that you're looking at. And this is the argument they're making. 
They're saying, they're saying see, our sin is just the dark mat, the, the dark backdrop, which, which glorifies the gospel of God's grace. The deeper the sin, the more glorious his grace. And so they're saying, by our sin, we're actually magnifying the gospel of grace. So why would God get mad at us for making him look good? Now, Paul responds. He's like, let's run with that. Let's think about that for a moment. He says, I'm using a human illustration. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Would it be, God, would it be wrong for God to inflict wrath on people who, un, or who don't believe, who, who live in sin? Verse 6, absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? See, we were created for the glory of God, and if my sin abounds to the glory of God, why would God judge me for glorifying him? Now, there's a derivative of this argument that we come into contact with all the time. And here's the lie. Here's the derivative of the argument. That if God made me the way I am, he certainly will not judge me for being who I am. If God made me the way I am, he certainly will not judge me for being who I am. And I was thinking about this lie this week, and Lady Gaga came to the rescue. What I mean by that is I, I had never thought about Lady Gaga, really, and I don't pay attention to her songs. But I was sitting there, and this song comes on. The name of the song is Born This Way. Born This Way. And this is what she says. I'm beautiful in my own way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Born this way. Ooh, there ain't no other way, baby. <laughs> I was born this way. Baby, I was born this way. Born this way. Ooh. There ain't no other way, baby. I was born this way. Right track, baby. I was born this way. Now, this is not a very complicated argument, as you can tell, but it's pretty simple. I was born this way, and God doesn't make any mistakes. I got a question. Do you believe that God makes mistakes? Isn't he perfect? And he made me this way. So why would God judge me for being who I am? Why would you ever do that? Paul says, let's think about that. Now, if that's, okay, is that what you're saying? Let's, let's carry that thought out. Let's carry it out. If your logic holds, God can't judge anyone. If your logic holds, God cannot judge anyone. Why? Because Hitler was born this way. Hitler was born this way. Actually, Hitler is a great servant of God. Because the more dark, and terrible and unrighteous his behavior, the more the glory of the gospel of grace, the diamond of God's grace, shines. The contrast gets more clear. So if Hitler is born this way, it is actually a great, Hitler was actually a great servant of God. Hamas is born this way. Pedophiles are born this way. Murderers are born this way. Gentiles are born this way. And see, the Jews, they would have said, God should, should judge the Gentiles. But Paul's like, how can, judge, how can God judge the world according to your logic? Verse 6, verse 5. I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Verse 6. Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? The answer is he can't. He can't. If the standard 
is that our sin magnifies the glory of God's gospel, the diamond of God's gospel. God can't judge anyone. And they would have said, no, of course people need to be judged. And so here, the Apostle Paul overturns the objection. It's invalid. It doesn't make any sense. God is totally right to judge. He is totally right when he judges people for their rebellion. God will be totally right to judge your sin. My sin. There's no unrighteousness with God. Now, what do we do with this information? What do we do? Well, one point of application. Believe the Christian life from start to finish is dependent on the grace and mercy of God. Now, please notice I did not say no that the Christian life from start to finish is dependent on the grace and mercy of God. I didn't say no. Most of us, maybe all of us, know that the Christian life from start to finish is dependent on the grace of God, grace and mercy of God. I said believe it. Believe it. And see, when you believe that the entire Christian life is dependent on the grace and mercy of God, everything changes. Your whole life is different. You live a different life. First, you will agree with God's verdict. You will agree with God's verdict. When you recognize that the Christian life from start to finish is dependent on the grace and mercy of God, then you can agree with God's judgment. You can say, you can say before God and to others, I have sinned against God, I deserve the judgment of God, and I need the grace of God. There's no excuse for what I've done. When you sin as a Christian, you're able to say, I've sinned against God, I deserve the judgment of God, and I need the grace of God. And this is why you stop blaming God and others when you sin. You know the heart that, that blames? The heart that blames other people when you sin? The heart that blames God? The heart that blames other people for your attitude, for what you said? That's a heart that is not in tune with the grace of God. It's a heart seeking to justify itself. It's a heart that is seeking to protect itself from the judgment of God. And so we're saying, no, 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 it's not me, it's not me, it's them, it's them, it's them, it's God. God, it might even be you. But see, when, when you believe the Christian life from start to finish is dependent on the grace of God, the grace and mercy of God, then you stop making excuses. You stop blaming other people. And you come into the presence of God dependent on his grace and mercy. And this is why the Christian heart sings. This is when you really be, you begin to worship God from the heart. See, when you think about salvation, the supernatural nature of salvation, when you think about from start to finish my entire life in Christ, my salvation and my sanctification is dependent on the grace and mercy of God, then your salvation becomes marvelous to you. Then you walk around with an attitude like, I still can't believe that God has saved a wretch like me. And you live with that disposition of your heart. And you worship all of it, all of life is about worship then. And so when you come to church and you have a hard time singing at church, what's going on there? What's happening? When you come to church, and you have a hard time singing at church. What's happening is that your heart and your mind is not in tune with the grace 
and mercy of God. Now, you might have distractions. You might be focused on opportunities, challenges. Uh, you might be thinking about why you're better than other people. I don't, know, I don't know what's going on in your mind. But when your heart has a hard time singing with the gathered people of God, it's because our heart is fixed on something else. And I want to be so clear. I love our church. I've been a pastor here for 15 years. Uh, I'm hoping to stay here for the rest of my life. That's my, if God will allow me, uh, I hope to spend the rest of my life here. It, it really is the great privilege, a great privilege to be one of the pastors of our church. I love our church. I hope we grow old together. <laughs> I hope we lose our hair together, go gray together. I hope we go to the end together. That's what I hope. And this is an area where we need to grow, is, is in the way that we sing as a church. It's in the way that we sing. And so I just want to formally challenge you men to sing. To sing when you come. Now you might be thinking, okay, that's a problem because I have a bad voice. Well, join the choir. Not literally, obviously, um, but <laughs> that's why we don't have a choir. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. But I, it's not about that. And just please, please listen to me, men. The church needs your voice. The church needs your voice when you sing. And if you don't sing, your sons will think singing is for women. When men don't sing, young men think singing is feminine that singing is for women. And it undercuts the message that we preach. And so, I wanna encourage you to sing, not to please men, but to please God. Not to please, not, 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 not so you feel uncomfortable because now people are li listening to you sing or something, that's not what it is. But sing, sing to please God, to worship God, and, you, and what happens to me so often is that my heart, when I start singing, sometimes my heart is not in tune with what's going on. But by the time I get to the end, my heart is just overflowing with gratitude. So singing not only helps your heart get in tune with the grace of God, but singing, singing reinforces. It just keeps reinforcing the truth of the gospel in our hearts. And men, when you sing, everyone will sing. When you sing, everyone will sing. And the praiseworthiness of Christ becomes more clear. Becomes, it becomes more clear. I've been thinking about Hebrews 13, 15, which says, through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips praising his name. You know, once, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, once you are not a people, and now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And part of what God has done in redeeming us is that he has, he has saved for him, himself a people for his own possession. And that we are to, we are as the people of God to proclaim the excellencies. The excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And there's something about the culture of the church, the culture of the people of God, where we gather, we sing. Christians are
are singing people. And, and just listen to me. If your heart can't sing, I'm not saying if your heart can't sing one song, if your heart can't sing one week, that's not what I'm saying. But week over week, if your heart can't sing, it's because your heart is not in tune with the gospel of grace. It's not in tune. And so how do you get your heart in tune? Sing. How do you keep your heart in tune? Sing. It's not a one size fits all. It solves every, it's not a silver bullet. But as a church, we want to be a place where Christ is exalted. Where Christ is exalted. Worship is much more than Sunday mornings. It's much more than just singing. But it certainly is not less. And so brothers and sisters, let's sing. Let's praise God for what he's done. Let's do a good job of singing when we gather together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that you are praiseworthy, that what you have done for